regular church attender who had a habit of always going to sleep in the Sunday morning service. It was like clockwork, just no sooner had the pastor read the text and prayed than he was fast asleep. Well, this was so consistent and so long-standing that the pastor eventually kind of got a little bit annoyed at this churchgoer's habit of always sleeping through the services. So he thought that he would take some action to curb the sleeping habits of this one particular gentleman. So one Sunday morning, he comes to church with a stick, about a two-foot-long stick, and he gives this stick to one of the deacons. And he tells the deacon to sit behind this particular gentleman that always nods off and goes to sleep. And whenever he nods off, when you see his head doing the head bob, then just tap him on the head with this stick. And he would learn that he would then not be able to sleep in a service, and he would retrain him to stay awake for the service. So the deacon was more than happy to do this. This was one task that he quite enjoyed. So he sat behind the gentleman, and then, sure enough, as soon as the preacher started preaching, then he started to do the head nod. And then the deacon taps him on the head, wakes him up. And then, a few seconds later, he nods off again. The deacon taps him, this time a little bit harder, thinking that he hadn't gotten his point across the first time. Happens again, a little bit harder, make sure he gets the point across. Well, finally, this particular gentleman has missed so much of his regular Sunday morning sleep that he is now so exhausted that he just falls over into a deep sleep, snoring, slumps over in the pew, and everything. To which the deacon then decides, well, we need more force here. So he whacks him across the head with the stick so hard that it knocks him out of the pew onto the floor. He sort of wakes up, everybody's astonished, and they're looking, and he sort of crawls back into the pew. And he, he was overheard turning around to the deacon and saying this, hit me harder next time, I can still hear him preaching. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the subject of sleeping in church, I think, is probably one of the most often joked about subjects in church, nodding off and going to sleep in the sermon. We've all done it. We all have seen it happen. It's sort of a regular thing. Well, do you know who the most famous church sleeper was? The most famous church sleeper was a young man by the name of Eutychus. And we're going to read about him in our passage this morning in Acts chapter 20. A person who has been forever immortalized in the pages of Scripture for falling asleep during church. So Acts chapter 20, we're going to pick up here in verse 1. Let's remind ourselves of what happened the previous time. Paul is in Ephesus and this riot has broken out. A riot because revival has fallen upon the church here in Ephesus and the church has openly repented and turned from their sin, in their instance, the sin of witchcraft. And so they've come and they've burned all their witchcraft books in public and in this visible public demonstration of repentance and turning from their sin. Now this has had such an effect on the city of Ephesus, even the non-believers in Ephesus, this has had such an effect that those who make and sell idols have seen their business plummet because people just aren't buying idols like they once were. And so this causes them to all get together and want to do something about this. So they get people stirred up and this riot breaks out and they are looking for Paul who they, they think to be the cause of this a decline in business. And so while they're looking for Paul, they beat up a few Christians in the meantime. And then God comes through in the most unusual way through this town clerk. The town clerk stands up and speaks some words of sense to the crowd and the crowd disperses and the disciples in Ephesus are safe, at least for the time 
being. So that brings us up to chapter 20, beginning from verse 1. We have a few verses to go before we get to this unusually delightful story of this man named Eutychus, who is forever immortalized as being a church service sleeper. You know, the story of Acts is filled with the most delightfully humorous stories, I think, among the pages of Scripture. Have you noticed how what a sense of humor Luke has? Have you noticed all these stories that we read that you just you, you kind of want to just sort of chuckle at the stories, if not break out and laugh? Remember the sons of Sceva? These seven people who want to cast out this demon, and they say, in the name of Jesus, who Paul talks about, we cast you out. And the demon says, well, Jesus I know, Paul I've heard of, but who are you again? Or then you remember the story of Peter, when Peter's put in jail, and the church is gathered together, and they're praying so fervently for Peter to be released that the angel comes and releases Peter, and he comes to the house, and he's knocking on the door, and they're so busy praying for him to be released that they don't hear him knocking on the door and let him in, and so he's still outside. So many of these humorous stories that Luke includes for us, this, I believe, takes the cake. The story of Eutychus. But before we get to Eutychus, we have a few verses between verse 1 and verse 7 is where the story of Eutychus picks up. So let's begin here in verse 1. Chapter 20, verse 1. After the, up, after the uproar ceased, the riot that we just talked about, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. So again, we see the consistent focus on discipling young believers. Paul again wants to go through, make a journey through Macedonia, strengthening and encouraging the disciples of these churches. The area of Macedonia, again, that would have been the churches of Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. Paul, again, is burdened for these new converts to the faith, these, this new church in these areas. And so he wants to go by once again and disciple them. Paul does not wish to go to these places and preach the Gospel and have people come to faith in Jesus and then just sort of leave them up to the Holy Spirit and the wolves. Instead, Paul will devote himself, the early church as a whole will devote themselves to the discipling of new believers, to bringing them along to maturity in their faith. So he makes another trip through Macedonia. Then verse 2, when he had gone through these re those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. Now when Luke says Greece, we should think Corinth because this, Corinth is in Greece and this is where Paul is going to. The only other place in Greece that Paul has been was Athens. And we don't know of a church that is in Athens, so he's in Corinth right now. Now for those of us who are regular Sunday nighters, you are going to get right now an extra little bit of connection, um, a little bit of a light bulb moment as I make a couple of connections for you. On Sunday night, we have been talking a great deal about the church in Corinth and this experience that Paul had with the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was an openly rebellious church that had false teachers that came into the church. They were teaching some false doctrines and, some, and they had turned the church against Paul. Paul makes a very painful visit to this church to rebuke them and encourage them to repentance, which they did not do, at least not initially. Instead, they rejected Paul, ran Paul out of the church. Paul leaves Corinth and goes to a place called Troas, where he writes this letter to the church in Corinth that is a harsh letter. We don't have it, and it's not included in our Bibles, but it's a very harsh letter. He sends that letter to the Corinthians by way of Titus. And then he and Titus are going to, he's going to wait for Titus in Troas, and they're going to meet up there in Troas. 
and go on after that. But if you remember the story, Paul is so upset and so anxious about the response of the Corinthian church to this letter that he can't wait in Troas. He only stays there a few days and then he leaves to meet up with Titus along the, along the road. Remember that, that? All those details are what really revolves, or the letter of 2 Corinthians revolves around. All of those things happen right now. This is, this is when that happens. So there's the connection for you. The painful visit that Paul makes to the church is here. And the painful letter that Paul writes is going to be also in this passage too. He's not going to talk about that letter, but all of those events occur right here. So for those of you who have been plugged in on Sunday nights, here's an extra moment of connection for you as Acts connects together with us on the letter of 2 Corinthians. So Paul goes to Corinth, and he spends in Corinth three months, we're told. Um, he goes to Greece. He spent three months there. These are three of the most difficult months of Paul's life. This is a low point in Paul's ministry. This is a point in which he has been openly and publicly rejected by a church that he planted. And so you can just imagine what is going on in the life of Paul right now. This is a very low time in his life. And in addition to this, in addition to the rejection from the Christians there, he's also, once again, the subject of hatred from the Jews. Because we read on in verse 3, when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So they uncover a plot to take Paul's life, to have Paul murdered. This is one of three plots that we read about in the story of Acts. Three plots against Paul to take his life. The first plot was in Damascus. You remember, he was in Damascus. They had to lower him down in the basket to escape. The other one will come later on in Jerusalem when Paul is in custody in Jerusalem. And his nephew, in fact, uncovers this plot to kill Paul. And they, in the Romans sort of uh, escort him out of Rome to get him out of, of, of uh, harm's way. So three plots against his life. Apparently this was some sort of a plot to kill Paul while he was on this ship traveling to Syria. Maybe, maybe the sailors on the, the ship were in cahoots with it or, or something. They, and they, so they plotted to throw Paul overboard when they were out to sea or something like that. But they uncover this. And so Paul says, all right, now... I'm not going to go by ship. I'm going to go back over land again. Which, by the way, that will give me another chance to go back and strengthen the churches once again. So he changes his plans to go over land now because of this plot that they've learned. By the way, that, how many times has Paul changed his plans? Paul changes his plans more consistently than he keeps them, doesn't he? When we follow Christ with all of our heart, we should be prepared for God to change our plans as He does consistently with Paul. This was one of the accusations that the false teachers were making against him in Corinth. This guy's always changing his plans. He tells you he's coming and then he changes his plans and does something different. He must not be an apostle of God because he's always changing his plans. Just the opposite is the case. When we follow God with all of our heart, it's not our plans that dictate what we do, it's God. And so God often changes those as He does for Paul here. He changes his plans and he goes through Macedonia. Verse 4 Luke tells us of those who go with him. Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. So a rather large group of people are traveling with Paul. Um, 
It's at the same time, you're familiar with this offering, this love offering that, Jew, that Paul is collecting for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. There's a famine in Jerusalem. The Christians in Jerusalem are hungry. So Paul is going around to all the Gentile churches collecting a love offering for the Jewish Christians. That's going on right now. So that would mean that, that Paul is probably traveling with a large sum of money. These churches have all given money for the Jerusalem Christians. Paul's traveling around with that money. This is not the day of traveler's checks and debit cards and bank accounts and everything. Paul has the money with him. It was very dangerous in those days to travel with money, so that's probably one reason why so many of these, these other men are traveling with him to give extra safety and security. They already know that the Jews are trying to kill them. They'd probably just as soon take their money at the same time. So the, he travels along with this big group of people. And then verse 5, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. You know some, notice something in verse 5? The pronouns change again. Back to, from they, them, back to we, us again. So we're back into another we section. Remember, we talked about these we sections of Acts. Luke is writing this, and then every once in a while, there'll be a section in which all the pronouns are first person. We and us, instead of third person, they and them. So this is telling us that this is now a section in which Luke himself is with Paul, traveling along with him. So the last we section left off back in chapter 16 when they left Philippi. So that tells us that probably Luke was left behind in Philippi to pastor the church there. Now, notice verse 5, they passed through the same area again, Macedonia, Philippi, and now Luke's back with them again. So they apparently pick Luke back up and he's going to travel with them down to Troas because this is now the second we-us section. So these events now, Luke is telling us these things firsthand. They, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi, there's Philippi, from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So he comes down to this place, Troas. And again, he's going to stay here a very short time, just seven days, because this whole turmoil is going on with the church in Corinth. And he's written this really harsh letter and he just can't, be patient and wait to hear how they received it. So he only stays in Troas a few days and he leaves to meet up back up with, with Titus. So these seven days that he's in Troas, he's going to be here with the church in Troas. Now the church in Troas is a church about which we know almost nothing. We don't know who started it. We, don't, we know nothing about the believers in Troas. This is the only time that we read about this church in Troas. Um, but this is a very helpful section for us because this is going to show us just a snapshot of early Christian worship. Some of the earliest uh, examples of Christian corporate worship. Whenever we see those things, especially in the Acts story, when we see descriptions of the church coming together to worship, it's helpful for us because this is a picture, it's a snapshot of how Christians worshipped from the earliest of the, of the days of Christianity, from the earliest of times. And so as we look at how Christians worship from the beginning, it's helpful for us to inform our worship so that we can worship more in line with, with how the church always has, has worshipped. And this, that's what we see here in verse 7 as we see this brief snapshot 
of the worship in Troas and what they're doing. So let's take a look at verse 7. This one verse here um, gives us at least four pieces of helpful information. Verse, uh, verse 7, On the first day of the week, when they were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So, in that verse we see at least four things, I think, that, that show us something about the earliest Christian worship. First of all, we notice that they are gathering together in someone's home. This Verse 7 doesn't tell us this explicitly, but I think we can make this connection a little bit later. First of all, there were no Christian buildings at this time. So apparently they were meeting in the home of someone. If we were to turn to 2 Timothy 4, verse 13, I think. 2 Timothy 4, verse 13, we see... Remember, Paul is in prison in Rome. And he's writing to Timothy. Timothy's coming to him. And he says, hey, bring my coat... But actually what he says, bring my coat that I left at Carpus's place. So, you ever done that? You go somewhere and pull off your coat, stay for a while, and then you leave and forget your coat. That's exactly what Paul did. He left and forgot his coat. Now Timothy's coming to him. He asked Timothy to bring it, but it was left with this guy Carpus. So they must be at this fellow Carpus's house. So what we see here, Christians are meeting in their homes to worship partly out of necessity because there were no Christian buildings, but partly out of function because we see consistently the early church, the early Christians viewed their homes as a place from which to do ministry. A place in which Christians gathered together and exhorted one another, taught the Scriptures, opened their Bibles, ministered to each other, ministered to lost people, worshipped together, we see that the Christian homes were a place to do ministry. I think that helps us today. It informs us to think of our homes in the same way. Not just as a place in which to change clothes and eat dinner and sleep and watch TV. But instead, our homes are centers for Christian ministry. To bring unchurched and lost people into our home, love them, minister to them, to have Christians gather together, use our homes as places for teaching the Word of God, and ministering and worshiping God in the context of our home. We see Christians doing that consistently throughout the story of Acts. Secondly, we see when it was they gathered together. We notice here on the first day of the week. The first day of the week is not Monday, as we sometimes think. The first day of the week is Sunday. And so Christians are gathering together on the first day of the week, Sunday, to worship. So let's think about this for a moment. The Christians are gathering together to worship the Jewish Messiah. When do the Jews worship? Saturday, right? The seventh day of the week. Why do do Jews worship on the Sabbath? Because God told them to. Over and over in the Old Testament. Told them to keep the seventh day holy. The seventh day was the day that they are to worship Him. But now we see the church worshiping on the first day of the week. When and why did that change? God never said it. God never, search His Word. God never says, stop worshiping me on the seventh day and start worshiping me on the first day. God never says, you might know any seventh day Adventists? You know any seventh day Adventists? Seventh day Adventists believe that not only are we supposed to worship on Saturday, but they believe that worshiping God on Sunday is, guess what? The mark of the beast. So congratulations, you all now have the mark of the beast because we're worshiping God on Sunday. Ridiculous, huh? But 
How is it and why is it that we worship God on the first day and not the seventh day? I think it is helpful for Christians to understand the reasons behind this. First of all, Christians realized that the Jews had attached so much legalism to the seventh day of the week that they wanted to separate themselves from that. You know how legalistic the Jews had become about the Sabbath. Just look at how angry they got when Jesus did good things on the Sabbath. When He would heal people, they would get upset with Him. Who do you think you are healing that guy on the Sabbath? So they had attached so much legalism to that day that the Christians saw value in separating from that day in the sense of their worship. And they realized, the early Christians realized, that God doesn't have a favorite day. It's not about a day of the week. God doesn't have a special day that is His favorite. And so, not wanting to be attached to the legalism of the Jewish Sabbath, the Christians, looking at their Scriptures, saw good biblical reasons to worship on the first day of the week instead of the last day of the week. What do you think those reasons would be? Well, there's a biggie. Something happened on a Sunday morning. The resurrection occurred on the first day of the week. Not only did the resurrection occur on the first day of the week, did you know that all of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances occurred on the first day of the week? Seventeen of them. In every instance in which Jesus appeared on, after His resurrection, in every instance in which the text can tell us which day of the week it was, it was always the first day of the week. In addition to that, not only was Jesus raised on the, on the first day of the week and made all of His appearances on the first day of the week, but... John's revelation, John, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, when John receives this revelation of Jesus Christ, that's on the first day of the week. In addition to that, the church was birthed on the first day of the week. The day of Pentecost is the day after the Sabbath. Which, by the way, do anybody know what the day is? Pentecost. Today's Pentecost. Pentecost occurs the day after the Sabbath. The church was birthed on the first day of the week. The Holy Spirit was given on the first day day of the week. And so Christians are reasoning through this and they see a real significance on the first day of the week. God the Father created His work of creation and rested on the seventh day. God the Son finished His work of recreation and He rested on the first day. And so Christians see all of that and they see the legalism behind the Sabbath and they say, we will worship on the first day of the week. We see that in the early church. For example, in your sermon notes, 1 Corinthians 16, Paul talks about the Corinthians' worship and he mentions the first day of the week when you are gathering together. We see it here again, the first day of the week. Now, as Christians... We want, to be just, we want to be careful not to make the first day of the week as legalistic as the Jews made the seventh day of the week. Right? And sometimes we can do that. We can be very legalistic about the first day of the week. And we can think of people as sinners who cut their grass on, on a Sunday or people that have to work on a job on a Sunday or something. Or maybe you, maybe, uh, you know somebody or maybe you, have been, maybe you sort of do this yourself. You know people that won't date a check on Sunday? You know, it just, we just kind of take that and we sort of make it legalistic in the same way the Jews made it legalistic. Listen, God doesn't have a favorite day. You know what Jesus said? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath serves us. We don't serve it. And so, yes, this is the Lord's day and there are good, significant biblical reasons for us to worship on this day as opposed to Saturday or Tuesday or whatever. But at the same time, we're not legalistic about that. We have freedom in Christ. So they're worshiping on the first day of the week. 
But we also see when they were gathered together to break bread. Now this phrase, break bread, means the, the supper, to, absorb, to observe the Lord's Supper. So we see the early church coming together, observing the supper. We saw the same thing back in chapter 2, verse 42, by the way. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread. So we see the early church coming together in corporate worship and observing the supper. And it seems to tell us that they're doing this at least every week. As they come together, they're doing it every, every week. Now, Scripture never tells us exactly how often we should observe the supper. But whenever we see the supper taking place in Scripture, it always seems to be at least on a weekly basis. When we look to 1 Corinthians 15, it seems to there be even more than a weekly basis. But it seems that, that whenever we see the supper occurring in Scripture, the implication is that they're doing it a whole lot more than four times a year or even once a month or something. They're doing it on a very regular basis. Now again, Scripture never tells us how often exactly to observe the supper. And I think we often have heard it said, you know, we shouldn't do the supper too much because it won't be special. It'll lose its meaning. Listen, everything that we do in worship, unless we remind ourselves of the meaning, it'll all lose its meaning. Singing hymns will lose its meaning unless we remind ourselves of the meaning behind that. Preaching the Word. Prayers will lose their meaning unless we consistently remind ourselves of the meaning behind that. Now when it comes to the supper, I don't know anything that's more Christ-centered than the supper. And so when we think through these things, it seems that as, as we look to Scripture, we don't see a command, but we do see an example of the early church observing the supper on a very, very consistent and regular basis. That's the third thing we see. The fourth thing that we see is the preaching of the Word. Paul preaches to them. Once again, the early church saw the preaching of the Word as the most central, the most important thing that they did. That was the, that when they came together, it was about the preaching of the Word. That was their primary reason to come together. That was the main thing that happened. We would look to Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, when, when Paul says to Timothy, here is your main pastoral duty, preach the Word. Explain the Word. Teach the Word. Exhort with the Word. And so the early church sees that this is the central, most important thing that they do when they come together. Paul preaches, but look at how long he preaches. Um, Paul's going to depart the next day. He's leaving the next morning. And so, because this is probably the only opportunity he's going to have with these Troatian Christians, he's got a lot to say to them, so he prolonged his speech until midnight. Wow. He prolonged his speech until midnight. Sometimes I prolong my speech until 12.15. Paul prolonged his speech until midnight. You know, this is the only culture that has any sense of coming together to worship Jesus Christ and dictating to the Holy Spirit the time frame. There is not another culture that I am aware of in which Christians dictate the ending time of their service. And I know Christians from just about every major cult. I know South American Christians. I know Central American Christians, I know African Christians, Asian Christians. 
and I have never heard of another culture dictating the end of their service. Instead, they will, they will determine the beginning time. As far as the ending time, that, that's up to the Holy Spirit. And yet, we seem in our culture, it just seems to be ingrained into us that the Holy Spirit has from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. Maybe 12.15 if He's working real hard. But beyond that, okay, that's all the time we got for you. Now, none of us would ever say that. We would never say, okay, Holy Spirit, that's what we have for you today. But isn't it true that that's how we think? Every Sunday, about five minutes to twelve, there's more shifting, looking at a watch, looking at each other. Because it's just ingrained into us that this is the time the Holy Spirit has. And go to work, Holy Spirit. We hope you're done by 12 or 12.15 because then we've got things to do after that. Paul preaches and teaches until midnight. Now, these guys didn't have Sundays off. If anything, they had the Sabbath off. They've worked all day. And here they come together and... The Spirit is moving and Paul has things to teach them and they're there until the Holy Spirit is done. Let me encourage us to think in those ways. We can tell the Holy Spirit what time we will gather together. And you know, Holy Spirit, we'd love for you to start at 11. But listen, this is your time, Holy Spirit. This is your time. Sometimes I'm fearful that God wishes to send us revival, but He's not going to do it until 12.30. But Paul preaches until after midnight. Now notice what this prolonged speech does. Verse 8, There were many lamps in the upper room where, he, where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, fell down on the th- from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him into his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long time, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. So, the sermon that literally killed somebody. The deadly sermon. All right? um, fortunately, I don't have that distinction of ever literally preaching someone to death. But uh, no, By the way, this is three people now who have lost their life in a church service in the story of Acts. Ananias, Sapphira, and now Eutychus. Interesting, huh? Three people literally lose their life during a church service. So this poor fellow, Eutychus, he falls asleep, he's in the window, Luke is careful to tell us he's a youth. So he would have been 8 to 14 years old. That's what that word meant, an 8 to 14 year old. So he wasn't an adult, he was a youth. Notice in verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. wonder why Luke tells us that. Well, the word lamps here literally means torches. Of course, this wasn't the day of electricity. They didn't have lights flicked on. They, They were lighting the upper room with torches. And Luke says, there was a lot of them. Now what do torches do? They consume oxygen. 
and they emit smoke. And Luke says there's a bunch of them, and we're in the upper room, and this is the Mediterranean. It's hot here. And you know what? All the, the oxygen is kind of leaving the room. There's a whole bunch of people here, and they're all breathing, and these torches are burning, and everybody's getting sleepy because the oxygen is being depleted in the room. You know, we worship today in, in places of con- climate-controlled environments, and so we don't think about these sort of things. But in this environment, it wasn't the case. The oxygen was being depleted from the room, and they were getting sleepy. Charles Spurgeon, this is funny, Charles Spurgeon once said, the two things that the church needs the most... Number one, in this order, number one, godliness. Number two, oxygen. Isn't that funny? Two things the church needs most is godliness and oxygen. This church was running low on oxygen. And so this fellow Eutychus, what does he do? He goes to the window where there apparently is more oxygen and he falls asleep and falls out the window. Now, we all have been there, right? We all can sympathize. Can't you relate to Eutychus? He's worked all day probably. I mean, it is midnight now. And the guy's still preaching. He won't stop. He's going on and on. And the eyelids are getting heavy. And man, I never knew eyelids could be this heavy, see? And it's just taking all the energy that I have to hold these eyelids up. Oh, wow. If I could just get a little bit of a break, let me just, let me just close them for a couple of seconds and just relieve the pressure. You know, and then... Oh, and then you close them, and then you get that jerk, you know, or the arm jerk when you, after about three seconds when you've been asleep. Or, don't say you hadn't done this, or somebody prays. And you're hoping it's a long one, because you're thinking, I'll get just a little bit of a snooze here. And sure enough, the eyes are closed, you're meditating, you're off, and next thing you know, everybody's standing up and singing. We've all been there, and we all know what's going on with this fellow Eutychus. But let's not be too hard on Eutychus. I mean, Eutychus was he was in the right place. He was in church. And it wasn't like he wanted to go to sleep. I mean, the, the spirit was willing, but the body was sleepy kind of thing. Because Luke says he was overcome by sleep. It wasn't like Eutychus said, oh, let me go over here and just sort of take a snooze in the window. This, what this guy Paul's saying is not important. Luke says he was overcome by sleep. You know, sleeping in church does not concern me in the least. And it shouldn't concern you. I was raised probably much like you were. My parents taught me that just about the worst thing you could do in church was go to sleep. And we tend to still think that way. Why? Sleep overcomes us. Sleep is power. It's your your body doing what it needs to do. Plus, we live in a time of, of medication. And there's many people that you have medication in your bodies that, that means when you sit down, that's what's going to happen. Or some of us are at ages in our life, at, at seasons in our life, in which when you sit down and get still, that's what happens. I know because my parents are both at that age. If they come over and visit, it, I mean, it doesn't take long. If they sit down, they're gone. Or... For some of us, maybe this is the first time that you've sat still all week. And the body does what the body naturally does, and it drifts off to sleep. There is nothing to be ashamed about when that happens, unless you were to say, I'm going to sit on the back row so that I can take a snooze. I don't think anybody does that. Sleep overcomes us. So sleeping in church does not concern me in the least. I've had people apologize to me for falling asleep. 
Unless you intended to, why do you need to apologize? That doesn't concern me. I'll tell you what does concern me. Are the thousands and thousands of Christians who sit in a pew wide awake every week while their bodies are awake and their spirits are asleep. That's what concerns me. The thousands of Christians who leave the church service with a very warm pew left behind and your eyes were wide open the whole time and your spirit was sound asleep. Slumbering as the Word of God was preached and yet you were so desensitized to the Word of God and so desensitized to the sin around you and the sin in you that the Holy Spirit is no longer even pricking your conscience. Because you've become so comfortable with the sin in you and the sin around you that you are now spiritually comatose. We sang about it. I brought the music up here. I was just thinking about this as we were singing. Brethren, we have met to worship. Verse 2. Brethren, see poor sinners round you slumbering on the brink of woe. Death is coming. Hell is moving. Can you bear to let them go? Some of us are spiritually asleep. Not aware in the least that the enemy is running rampant that our culture is on a fast track into a depraved hell. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the church sleeps along. There's a biblical example of this, and that example is Samson. Remember the story of Samson? Samson started out life really well. He ended well too. But he started life really well, and Samson became so intrigued with the toys of the world he became so interested in, in the sin around him. Remember Samson's sin? His sin was pretty Philistine women. And he became so enthralled with pretty Philistine women that he fell into that trap and he fell into that trap and pretty soon he was so desensitized to that that he didn't even know what he was doing. And then comes Delilah, the ultimate Philistine girl. And remember how he toyed with her? Thinking, I'm in control. Remember, she's trying to find out the secret to his strength and he's toying with her. He says, it's this, it's that. Thinking all along, I can play with this thing and I'm in control. And then he tells her, the hair. Remember what he does? It's in your sermon notes. Remember what he does? Judges 16, verse 20. Then Delilah said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, no problem. I'll go out at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Folks, how deeply asleep do you have to be to not know that the Lord left you? Answer? Not much. Not much. Just barely bobbing the head. And the Lord can depart and you not know it. And that's what concerns me is that every Sunday morning on the first day of the week, Christians gather everywhere and we open our hymnals and we open the Word of God and we pray and we have no idea that the, the Lord has left because we are asleep. Think of all the warnings that Scripture gives us about being spiritually awake 
Romans 13, verse 12, The night is gone, is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness. Or to the Corinthians, Wake up from your drunk, drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. Or to the Ephesians, For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Or the words of Jesus in Mark 13, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. The disciples wanted to know, when are you coming back, Jesus? Jesus says, that's not the point. The point is for you to stay awake. Or who can forget Jesus' words in the garden? As Jesus goes off into the most awful night of His life, under the, the greatest distress that a human could ever bear, and He asks His disciples, pray for Me. And three times He comes back in their sleep. Could you not pray one hour? And Jesus' point is not to rebuke them because their bodies are tired. Jesus is teaching them about spiritual alertness. I think many of us are asleep because we are so familiar with the things of God. Familiarity with the things of God has created boredom in us. And that boredom has just resulted in just sort of spiritually slumbering. Do the things of God bore you? When the words to the spiritual songs come on the screen, do you think to yourself, I hope we're just singing two verses and not three? Do you think, why can't the choir sing the call to worship? Why do we have to sing too? Why do we have to stand to sing? How many times have you looked at your watch since 11? Do the things of God bore you? If the things of God bore you, then let me help you understand why. It is because you are spiritually asleep. Now, what do we do if we are spiritually asleep? The passage tells us. Eutychus, who is an illustration of this, he falls asleep. Luke is not saying that Eutychus was sinful. He's saying his body was tired. He falls out of, the, out, of the, out of the window, out of the third floor window, and he's dead. Make no mistake, Luke is a physician, and Luke was there. And so Luke, the grammar that Luke is using, he's making it clear, they didn't just think he was dead, and Paul comes and he wakes up. This kid was dead. This is a resurrection miracle. And so he falls out of the window. Paul comes down and lays on top of him. What does that remind us of? The two Old Testament resurrections, Elisha and Elisha, where they laid on top of the boy. You know there's only seven resurrections in the Scriptures, including Jesus. Five in the New Testament, including Jesus. Two in the Old Testament. This is highly unusual. This guy falls out the window. Paul comes. He's resurrected back to life. Now, you might know what time of year it is. I mean in the story. You might know what time of year it is. Back up in verse 6. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. What are the days of unleavened bread? Passover. So this is immediately after Passover. What is immediately after Passover? Easter. Jesus was killed during Passover and raised. Paul is here at Troas during Easter. 
and he's talking to them and teaching them and preaching to them during Easter, do you think that part of what Paul had to say to them was about the resurrection? Do you think that Paul talked a great deal about the resurrection? And there is one. Do you think this church in Troas ever stopped talking about this? Here was Paul preaching the resurrection. And we looked around and somebody said, where's Eutychus? And then we heard a scream. And Paul ran down and laid on him and he was raised to life. Do you think they ever stopped talking about that? Folks, if you are spiritually asleep, then you are raised to newness of life in the same way Eutychus was. God does it. God raises us back from spiritual comatose into spiritual life. There's a word for that. What is that word? Revival. Folks, this is a story about revival. This is a story of when revival fell upon the church of Troas. And those in Troas and those around Troas, just like in Ephesus, who were spiritually asleep, awakened from their spiritual slumber by an act of